Welcome back to another episode of the Velocity Cast. This is officially episode 50, which is crazy to think about this little journey that we started 50 weeks ago. Uh, it's been a blast getting to share some deeper thoughts and moments from some of the newsletter topics that I've covered and getting to dive into this stuff in a little bit more detail. But what I wanted to do with this particular episode is try something new, and this necessarily won't happen every week, uh, but I wanted to go into exploring high performers or people who have achieved really interesting or prominent things. And I recently was reading a book called Billionaire's Row by Catherine Clark. Now, this book chronicles the construction of several of the skyscrapers on Billionaire's Row in New York City, which is a stretch of 57th Street that essentially borders Central Park. And these skyscrapers were constructed in a very unique way, which I'll dive into a little bit, uh, by several prominent New York City developers. And the goal was to give high net worth individuals unparalleled views of Central Park and create truly monumental towers to harken back to the time of skyscrapers really first being built in New York City and around the United States. And one particular individual, a man by the name of Gary Barnett, is prominent in this book because he actually created the first successful tower on Billionaire Row called 157. And Gary was an interesting guy who started his career actually as a diamond trader in Belgium and spent many years of his life uh, working in the diamond industry and decided to come to the United States in the 90s to pursue real estate. And he started by uh, essentially buying up shopping malls and, and plazas and other things in the Midwest. And he made his way to New York City in 1994 and eventually actually brokered the deal to create the W Times Square. And that was kind of his first major project after doing some smaller stuff. But he is, Gary Barnett is the president and founder of a development company called Xtel. And the whole history of these towers is there was a time period where a lot of these developers were kind of in, a, in an arms race, if you will, to put these towers up. And this whole stretch of 57th had not really been a quote unquote wealthy area or considered to be a wealthy area before these developers started moving in and kind of big, uh, building up these towers. And the interesting way that they went about it was they would essentially buy up all of the buildings in an, in an adjacent lot or a surrounding lot. And they would essentially kind of put these puzzle pieces together in order to get a footprint big enough to construct the tower. Now, there was a whole air rights situation where you could essentially purchase air rights from adjacent buildings in the city to add available height to your tower. And the this was all based off of a simple calculation that took into account essentially the ground floor or ground level of the building. So what these developers would do is they would buy up these units kind of on a block, try to maximize the height that they could build to based on this calculation uh, with the air rights. 
and they were selectively building in areas where the multiple on the air rights was highest. So you could essentially construct the tallest tower by amassing this large footprint on the ground floor. So this whole process is incredibly interesting. And it became a, a race between him, uh, this other guy, Harry Macklow, who had a little bit more experience at the time in the New York City real estate scene and was also putting up a tower. And Macklow had actually started the process a little bit earlier, but Gary Barnett was able to kind of beat him to the punch and get funding together to, to actually construct this tower. Now, as he started acquiring these buildings, he, he really started amassing buildings for the site uh, starting around 1998. So Barnett kind of started this process of buying up these adjacent properties and starting to, to put together a potential footprint for this mega tower. And the plans weren't filed for 157 until 2009. So he had this idea to construct this massive skyscraper. And you know, construction didn't get underway for many years. So you're looking at over a decade of time spent kind of amassing all of the property necessary in order to construct this building. Now, once the plans were filed in 2009, construction officially began in 2010. So a year later, construction began after plans had been filed and they reached the top floor of the tower in 2012. So over a two-year span, essentially, they were able to build the tower to the uh, top floor, kind of uh, building it to the highest possible point. And then it was finished two years later in 2014. Now, the whole sales process for this was crazy because it was really the first building of its kind. So Billionaire's Row was not officially a thing at the time. What they did was they took advantage of a city tax exemption program. And there was actually a lot of controversy that surrounded the construction of this tower because uh, Barnett's group had made a political donation to Andrew Cuomo, who at the time was in charge of all this stuff in the city. And so they, they made these series of political donations. Their building actually got grandfathered into a policy that had expired in 2008, which allowed you to, uh, there was a mandatory affordable housing clause in order to take advantage of this tax break. So essentially, if 20% of the units in your building were considered affordable housing, then that allowed you to defer some of the real estate taxes and get a, a break or a credit on those. Now, prior to 2008, Instead of including these units in your building, what you could do was essentially offset or this tax requirement by funding the creation or the construction of affordable housing elsewhere. So they essentially created uh, several affordable housing units in the Bronx that allowed them to then offset the real estate taxes that would be paid on this building. And they used that as a sales tactic for people who were buying these massively expensive condos to offset that real estate tax bill for them. Now, the concerns came from comparing essentially the value of affordable housing provided to the tax break that 
the city would have to kind of bear the brunt of over the next several years for what many considered to be people who were more than wealthy enough to pay for said real estate taxes. And there there were other issues with regard to shadows being cast on Central Park. There were conservation groups that were trying to essentially get these buildings banned for causing shadows and disrupting the city skyline. But construction moved forward uh, regardless. And the this tower essentially became the first of its kind. Now, it was designed by a French architect and urbanist, Christian de Park, and he's, his vision for the building was essentially a cascading wave. So the facade of the building has blue tiles, blue glass in different shades, and it's meant to represent or symbolize kind of a crashing wave as it goes down the face of the building. Now, while the design itself is very interesting and uniquely different, many people actually were unimpressed and actually thought that the building itself was quite gaudy when it was first constructed and completed. And so you have this massive, uh, to many people believe to be an eyesore that's kind of now towering above the skyline of New York City. But there were some interesting design choices made because they were trying to attract international buyers to this tower. And, you know, if you're talking about just uh, traditional New York City wealth, many of those individuals were not necessarily interested in kind of flaunting their wealth or showing off in that regard. But they had to balance this with international buyers who oftentimes were buying these units to kind of show off or to showcase their wealth and their riches. And so some of the design elements for this building kind of struck a compromise to satisfy both groups. So as far as the interior design, some of the interesting features that were chosen uh, as far as the interiors. So many of the materials used were obviously chosen because they were the best in the world. And Roy Kim, who is the senior vice president of design at Extel Corporation under Barnett, actually traveled to Italy to approve every single piece of white marble that was used in the bathrooms of each of these condos. Each slab was essentially $130,000, and out of that slab, they were able to construct two bathtubs for these units. So obviously the price tag or the sticker price on these units are in the tens of millions of dollars, but just to give you a kind of perspective on how luxurious some of these finishes were, you have this 130 thousand dollar slab of marble from Italy that's essentially creating two bathtubs. All of the details, the finishes, the interiors, everything was designed to be the best of the best to attract the type of clientele who was interested in that sort of thing. And Barnett really was the first to strike uh, and kind of timed it perfectly. Now, to take a step back, what I find to be impressive about Barnett is that he was a strategic risk taker. And he dove into this project headfirst at a time when many other people would kind of run for the hills. So if you if you look at this in the context of the American economy and the economic cycle, right, think about the fact that he started to acquire this, this site or buildings for the site in 98. The plans were filed in 2009, which is right after the real estate crash in the United States. So real estate prices are plummeting. This is a time when the future is very uncertain. 
we're as a country heading into a recession. And Barnett believed that despite the downturn, when the economy recovered, he believed that the New York real estate market would boom and that there would be lots of money pouring in despite the financial hardship. Now, couple this with the fact that he made the strategic decision to build for and market to international buyers. And now you have a situation where this is a guy who took a massive risk. He was able to secure financing for this project at a a questionable time. Construction starting in 2010. We're still dealing with the aftermath of that downturn, of that market crash. And he's kind of charging ahead as a lot of other people are sitting on their laurels and, and waiting to see what happens. Now, obviously, history could tell a very different tale if the economy never recovered, if he wasn't able to secure financing, if he wasn't able to move forward with the project. So, you know, just as likely is a situation or a universe in which he failed to, you know, accomplish his goal here. But what I respect about this is the tenacity to continue forward, to believe in his hypothesis and be willing to kind of put his money where his mouth is and continue to drive forward because he did believe that all of these factors would time up well and that when the building was completed, the economy would be in a very different place, in a positive place compared to the situation that things were in when he started construction. Now, obviously he was rewarded for that risk-taking behavior. You know, whether it was a good idea or a bad idea is you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. So looking back now, we can say that it was a good idea, but I'm sure it was a scary decision at the time. And he was also, you know, kind of competing against several other groups of people who were essentially trying to do the same thing. So you have this arms race of sorts taking place in the New York real estate scene. There are other groups and other builders who are trying to accomplish the same thing. And he had to charge forward and secure funding for this project you know, through a number of creative means. And these deals came together with funding from all sorts of places. He actually secured financing from a few individual investors and then essentially closed on a $700 million loan from a Bank of America syndicate. So taking on huge risk, huge debt, which, you know, uh, regardless of your feelings on capitalism or, or our, you know, economic society here in America, this is a massive undertaking. And, you know, something that, created this incredible end result. But, you know, you have to commend the risk takers, the people who are willing to take on these challenges, because this is now a guy who, you know, has changed the New York City skyline forever and essentially kickstarted the creation of these amazing feats of modern architecture design in the building itself. There are about 50% of the units sold are sold to international buyers, a big portion of whom come from China and other places throughout Europe. But some notable residents uh, that are confirmed, the prime minister of Qatar owns one of the units. One of the most expensive uh, units in the building was a, a, a dual floor penthouse that was sold to hedge fund manager Bill Ackman. And it's funny, his at the time, his wife didn't even want to live in the building. So he they, they essentially decided to kind of do it over as, a, as an investment property for a resale down the road. And one of the other most expensive units in the building, and we're talking over $100 million, was actually sold to Michael Dell, the founder of Dell Computers. And 
uh, one of the other units in the building is owned by Robert Herjavec, who is the one of the sharks on Shark Tank, one of the ones who appears on most of the episodes, if not all. So kind of a very interesting slew of prominent people who live in the building who are relatively well known here in the States. And, you know, now it's there are still some available units, but more than 95 percent of the condos in this building are essentially occupied. Now, one of the other interesting things about many of these towers that are going up on Billionaire Row is because they are so tall, you have to imagine that the forces of wind and weather can actually cause quite a lot of problems for these buildings. And in the construction of 157, there was actually a massive uh, windstorm from a hurricane that caused one of the construction cranes that was on the side of the building to essentially snap. And this crane was dangling precariously over 57th Street. And so they had to actually clear the area, clear some of the residents from adjacent buildings and kind of go in and take care of this situation. And there was a lawsuit that was brought to Extel to the construction company because of the people who had to evacuate. Uh, there were, uh, you know, business professionals in the area, a group of dentists who were suing for lost wages or lost income because they had to evacuate the office. And, you know, essentially the city had just inspected and approved a permit for the crane recently and kind of said that you know, everything was in working order. And so the lawsuits ended up falling flat just because the city had kind of put the stamp of approval on this crane and said that it was, you know, up to standards and everything. And so it was deemed a freak accident. But one of the strategies that some of these other towers used was actually leaving vacant floors, which did two things. So using open floor space allowed air and wind to pass through, which would minimize the effect of swaying on the towers. But these floors actually didn't count towards the total square footage or height allowed on these air rights. And so by leaving some of these floors open, these towers were actually able to build themselves to higher heights and actually increase the total height of the buildings. So kind of interesting strategy where it really became this arms race to touch the sky. And these towers have kind of all competed with one another for the same ultra wealthy, unique clientele who want to live in a place where they have unobstructed views of Central Park. And many of these uh, these condos are constructed so that you can see both sunrise and sunset over the park from where you live, which is super, super interesting. So regardless of how you feel uh, about the amount of wealth in the world or the towers themselves or whatever, I wanted to explore someone who I found particularly interesting as I read about him and his story, because I do applaud this guy who came from a different field, who spent much of his career selling diamonds and working in that industry to transition into real estate and not just transition into real estate, but New York City real estate to then be responsible for the construction of a massive project at the W Times Square, and then to kind of parlay that experience into constructing the first successful, first completed project on the now famous Billionaire's Row. So very interesting guy, interesting uh, risk profile for sure. Definitely uh, 
timed the market correctly, but did so because of his belief in himself and in his vision. And that, I think, is an interesting person to analyze for this first character profile. And I also chose him because I'm sure many of you are not familiar with him. He's definitely a lesser known public figure. So Gary Barnett, the president and founder of Extel Development Company, and he is responsible for the construction of 157, which is the first project completed on Billionaire's Row on 57th Street. So next week, we'll be back to a little bit more of a normal episode, but hopefully you enjoyed this character profile this week, and I'm sure I'll be doing some more of these in the future. So until next time, have a wonderful weekend. <music>